Good morning, good morning. Good to see you all. Good to be back. Uh, this is home for me, really. Um, my wife and I are celebrating our 40th anniversary this spring. And the reason I bring that up is we did our premarital counseling here. So over 40 years ago, we were sitting right here attending church. Tim Eck and Dave Castle were the ones that, that uh, got us ready for marriage, and it, and it took it stuck. And uh, in fact, my wife would be here right now, but she's leading worship at Freedom Covenant Church today. And so she's doing that. We had to divide and conquer. But uh, Hillcrest has has been family, friends, and home for us for years and years. And and whether you, I don't know if you know it or not, but Hillcrest has just been so faithful in supporting our ministry, our urban ministry in the heart of the city. From the beginning, we've been going at it 27 years. And from the beginning, Hillcrest has been faithful in supporting us and sending people. And, 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 the, and the leadership team has just been uh, f- genuine friends to us and encouragers. So I'm just so grateful for Hillcrest. And in light of that, I'm, I'm honored to be here again to, to share. And, and I pray that the Lord will, will uh, speak to us all now as, I, as we open his word. Well, let me begin by, by sharing a story with you. Um, I'm a history buff. I am not a history expert. I want to say that because the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. And, and, uh, and I'm not an expert, but I am a history buff. I love history. And in the last 10 years especially, I've been diving into history. And one area that I particularly like is World War II history. I mean, it's just fascinating. I mean, the good versus evil and just incredible things that happen. And a big part of the reason why I, I like it and, and I'm interested in it is my dad was a World War II hero. He uh, flew in the Army Air Corps in the China-Burma-India Theater, flew 334 missions. So if any of you are watching Masters of the Air and they're trying to get to 25, he did 334, shot down three times, three Purple Hearts, and amazing stories. My, My uncle was a colonel under General Patton, in the armored division. And so I have a real interest in World War II and all things related. One of my all-time favorite stories is the story of Louis Zampernini. You may be familiar with that name. He's become well-known and publicized uh, for his in, uh, incredible exploits during World War II. He grew up in Torrance, California. He was the terror of Torrance. He was getting in trouble all the time. I mean, this guy, he, he learned how to run by running away from the authorities. And he became an Olympic runner. He was so good. In fact, I think sports really spared him when he was younger because he was getting in so much trouble that sports gave him focus and kept him out of trouble. He was a contender for being the first miler to break four minutes, which was incredible. He went on to the Olympics and won there. And that was an incredible Olympics. I think of all the Olympics... That's the most incredible one there was, 1936. I mean, think about it. That, it, it was, the competition was in Berlin at the beginning uh, of, of the Nazi regime. And you know, Nazi had been, the Nazis had been putting all this propaganda about, about the Aryan race. And then guys like Jesse Owens comes and wins every sprint. And totally, uh, you know, uh, embarrassing Hitler. And then if you've watched The Boys in the Boat, and if you haven't, you need to. You can now buy it now, I think, on on Amazon Prime if you missed it in the theaters. But they competed in the 1936 Olympics. They met Jesse Owens on the boat and Louis Zampernini. Louis competed in the 1936 Olympics as well. And so just incredible stories. 
And then World War II starts, and Louis wants to do his bit for the war. And so he signs up to be part of Army Air Corps. He flew a B-24 Liberator, which was a big old bomber. It, it, it was kind of a flying albatross. Uh, it was very effective in World War II, but the pilots did not like it so much because it was known for mechanical problems and being difficult to fly. And this one fateful day, Louis was climbing into his B-24, but it was one of the B-24s that had a bad reputation for having issues. And sure enough, it had an issue on that mission, and they went down. They tanked it in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, most of the crew died uh, in that crash. A few survived, including Louie. And they were set adrift in a dinghy, a little inflatable raft, for 47 days. Can you imagine? I mean, my Scottish skin would not have survived that 47 days in the sun like that. And one of the guys didn't make it. He died. Um, but two, two of them, including Louie, survived. And they are later picked up by the Japanese Navy. And I was going to say they were rescued by them, but they really weren't rescued. They were taken and they were tortured. They were put on this island where they were, they were beaten and tortured. And then later they were moved to the main island to Japan where they spent the remainder of the war. And in some terrible conditions and incredible brutality that they suffered. But Louis survived that. And his story has become famous, as probably most of you know, Laura Hildenbrand wrote a book called Unbroken about Louis Zampernini. And then later, Angelie Jolie made a movie about it entitled the same, Unbroken. And a great story about Louis standing up, persevering against all perseverance, not bowing or compromising uh, even when they tried to make him bow down and compromise. In fact, they tried to use Louis as a political pawn. They would prepare a script for him to read that they were going to broadcast to the Americans, at which he had to denounce America and support the Japanese regime. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't compromise, and he'd get beaten for it. They'd also set up these mock track meets where he would have to race some of their best runners, and they'd beat him before the meet, so he couldn't compete as well, but he would still win, and then he'd get beaten again by them. And so it was just a crazy stuff, but the Japanese did not like America at that time. It's amazing way times have changed, right? But at that time, they did not like America because we stood against them geopolitically, there was economic competition, and our policies in the Pacific were so different that they didn't like it. In fact, on the throes of World War II, or actually World War II had already started, but before America had entered in, America was sending pilots to China because Japan was trying to spread its imperialistic ways and take over China. And so we sent pilots there. They couldn't be officially U.S. pilots. They were, they were like mercenaries, kind of. They were... Uh, given to the Chinese government, and these pilots became the first Chinese Air Corps. And uh, General Chenault led that, and they became known as the Flying Tigers. And later they were based at the same base where my dad was, and he became friends with some of these guys and actually flew some of the P-40s at times that they flew. But uh, because of that, China saw that as a threat, and that's what led to, in part, at least to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that's when Louis signed up and, and joined the Army Air Corps. But they were mad at us. They didn't like us. Um, you know, they were so mad. It says that, uh, I wrote here, the Japanese were mad because the U.S. defied their political endeavors. 
in China, felt strange sense of competition, and it threatened their influence over people. Now, that's not a new scenario, is it? We've seen that scenario played out many times. And one of the premier best stories that represent that, that dynamic, that tension, is found in the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, which is our passage for today. And we're going to see that these political religious leaders felt that strange sense of competition. Felt like their influence was being threatened. And their endeavors, their political and religious endeavors were being thwarted. And we see how they responded with violence as well. And so we're going to talk about that now. Acts 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 through 42. Give you just a little backdrop here. This is really the beginning of serious persecution for the Christians, which continued through 300 AD for a long time. Uh, you could be put to death for being a Christian, beaten and tormented and jailed for sure. But for, for centuries, Christians were beaten and tortured. And the disciples here, the apostles here, were the first. And they set a great example for others to follow. And even, even though we're not persecuted, quite like uh, the folks were back in the day, praise God, we still uh, have obstacles and opposition and difficulties that we have to overcome in our, disciples, in, in our lives. And the disciples have a great example for us. So in light of that, let's read. Acts 5, verses 21 through 42. This is a fairly long passage, but I think it's worth giving attention to the scripture and what it says to us. And there's so many great things uh, to, to pick up from here. And as we read this, I want to encourage you, think about who is mentioned and what is said about them. All right, so and the disciples had been preaching the gospel since Jesus was cruci crucified and rose again. They, they got up and started preaching again, and all these religious leaders thought they'd already closed the door on that problem. We're like, oh, no, <laughs> this fire is burning wild again. we got to put it out. And so they put the disciples, the apostles, in jail. And that's where we pick up here with verse 21. It says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And so and came and told them, Hey, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not with force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Uh, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, uh, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice and they called the, the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did, uh, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Now that's pretty profound. I mean, it's just amazing. And I, I want to say this as it, it, just kind of a uh, precursor to uh, before we dive in. Whenever you're studying the word, any passage really, there are a set of questions you can ask yourself to get a lot out of that passage. I know for me personally, sometimes when I read the word, if I'm not engaged, I can read a passage, shut it, and I won't remember a thing. What did I just read? And so it's always good to ask yourself some what I call inductive study questions whenever you open up any passage. Not every question will necessarily be applicable, but some of the questions always will be applicable. And so here's, here's some examples. When you look at a passage, ask yourself, are there any repetitions here? Any repetitions of ideas, actions, or thoughts? Because if there's repetitions, it's probably important. You know, when you're in school and a professor, you know, repeated something several times, maybe even banged on the, on the pulpit a little bit, you knew it was important. And the same is true in the scriptures. When you see something repeated, it's something that we need to take note of. Another thing is, are there any promises mentioned? If there's some promises, we need to take note, you know, because they're encouraging. God gives us a lot more promises than you realize in scripture. So you need to take note of those. Sometimes there's commands and we need to take note of those as well. I mean, commands are important, right? Directives that God has given us. We don't want to overlook those. Another thing, are there any examples to follow? Or sometimes even better, not to follow. Because you can learn a lot from that. Another question you can ask, which is one that we're going to look at today, is it's just a simple reading comprehension question. Who's mentioned and what is said about them? And so that's what we're going to do. There's three groups that we're going to look at and, and examine and see what is said about them because there's some great life lessons for us to be found in this. The first group is the community leaders. Now, some might think of them as like the, the religious leaders, the pastors, and they were that. They were that, but they were more than that. They were the government of the day. Back then, the religious circles were the government. They called the shots. They made the laws. And they, they were in charge. And so it's not just pastors. And I think sometimes pastors get a bad rep. You know, oh, you're just a Sadducee. Oh, you Pharisaical. You know, pastors, I think, are pretty good. I'm a little biased. You know, I think Nathaniel's a good dude. You know, I don't think he would have been a part of this council. I just want to say. Um, Nate Severson, maybe. But Nathaniel, no, I'm not. not just kidding. Just kidding. Um, 
But, uh, but the, really, this was the community leaders. And so when we look at this and we're looking at how it applies to our lives, we've got to think of community leaders that fall into this. And so we're going to look at the community leaders. We're going to look at the apostles, what is said about them. And then we're going to look at Gamaliel, who is the representative of the Pharisees, and what is said there. And there's some great lessons. So let's start with the community leaders. There's three words that I've highlighted here that I think uh, really depicts these community leaders. First, they were fearful, they are faithless, and they are furious. Now, let's begin with fearful. They oppose the gospel because they are fearful. They are afraid because the gospel spoke out and, and, and won the hearts of the people. Because it's Why? Because it's good news that the Messiah came. The God who sets us free from sin, from self, from our addictive habits, that set us free to love each other in a way that's wholesome and healthy. The gospel which enables us to live our best lives. It's a great message, and it was taking the influence away from these community leaders who did not have and share that message. And so they were fearful that they were losing their power and their authority. They were threatened by it. They were jealous for themselves. And as happens in these situations so often, they became bullies and violent. And they tried to force their way. And I think today, you know, we see that in politics, don't we? I think politics really represents this. You know, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. They're just a bunch of bullies in politics. And the, and the exploits and the, the, the activities and the methods that people try to get their ways across is sometimes very representative of how this city council worked. They're threatening. They're bullies. They try to belittle people. And, uh, and now I'm thankful that there are some godly people that have entered into that arena and trying to make a difference. And we need to pray for that. And we need more people to rise up and be in the political realm, even though it's so difficult. Well, these guys were also faithless. Now, that may sound funny because they were religious leaders, and certainly they had some measure of faith. But, you know, they didn't believe in the Messiah, even though he did so many miracles, incredible messages, so many proofs that he was the real deal. They also didn't believe, at least the Sadducees, did not believe in some biblical principles like heaven. They didn't believe in heaven. I'm thinking, how sad is that? You know, to think that this is all there is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've gone through enough heartache and pain in my life. There's enough things going on in, in, in my life that have been painful. I, I also recognize my body's deteriorating and not quite what it used to be. And I look forward to Revelations 21 when everything is made new. Heaven gives a hope. And when you don't have that hope, it could be a depressing lifestyle. And no wonder these guys were so grouchy and mean. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't have that hope. Another thing they didn't believe in was angels. Now, I find this particularly interesting in this passage because it was angels that set the apostles free. God has a sense of humor, guys. I mean, this is a divine irony, right? That he used angels to set these apostles free. He could have done like he did with the apostle Paul, you know, later in Acts, where he set Paul free from jail through an earthquake. But no, he chose angels, one of the very things that the Sadducees did not believe in. And isn't it fascinating that they didn't even question them about that? They didn't want to open that can of worms because they didn't have faith that met that. And then they were furious. 
They are furious because the disciples spoke out against them. They are winning people's hearts. They are losing what they felt like was their influence. And they resorted to violence to try and win their way. And that just does not work. We found through history that every time Christians have been uh, uh, persecuted, where the church has been tried to be suppressed, it has actually flourished. God has a divine way of making that happen. And so that's a little bit about the community leaders, what describes them. For the apostles, I have three more words here. I apologize for all the alliterations. I couldn't help myself here. But, um, but the, the, the apostles, three words, disciples, defiant, and determined. Now, first of all, the apostles were disciples. And when I think of disciples, I think of several things. That means that they were devoted they were devoted to Christ and his teachings. They believed it. They took it to heart. They were loyal to Jesus. They were loyal. They didn't care if people persecuted them because they were going to stand true to Jesus regardless. And they are proclaimers, right? They were going to tell the good news of Jesus. And they didn't do this to try and win some political view. They did it because they experienced for themselves the life that only Jesus can give us. They experienced the freedom from sin, from selfish ways. They experienced the freedom to learn how to love, the freedom to live their best lives through Jesus. And because of that, they wanted to share that with others. That's where they're at. And that's what they did. They were devoted disciples is what they were. But they were also defiant. They were bold, right? I mean, they were standing in front of the, the council that had all the legal authority at that time. And they flipped the script on them. Here they were supposedly being held in trial with the city council. And they flipped the script and said, you guys are guilty. You're guilty of killing the Messiah and his blood is on your hands. And this man you killed, he's alive. He's resurrected and it's him that we serve by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he gave us and gave to everyone who follows him. They flipped the script on them. You talk about bold. But they didn't do it like they were trying to win some political argument. They didn't do it because they were trying to build this following or, or uh, uh, build some sort of name or ministry for themselves. They are doing it because they sincerely believed in Jesus and knew the difference that he can make for everybody that follows him. And so that was their motivation. And they were bold and fearless in it. They were defiant when it needed to be. And we need to be defiant at times. Our society wants to beat us up and tell us, no, we shouldn't have a voice. No, we shouldn't be proclaiming the good news. I know the one church in town, when they go on missions, they don't take their Bibles. They don't proclaim the good news. They just do social gospel because they think it's wrong to preach the gospel, especially if you're going into another uh, culture, which is crazy, right? Because biblically, the, all the disciples went into different cultures and they still preached the gospel. Jesus came to a different culture to live and die for us and preach the good news. And so we've got to be about proclaiming the good news and not be bullied into it. Well, they were determined. They weren't going to give up even when they met obstacles and, and, and persecution. They counted it as a privilege and it encouraged them to go even more. I would like to think that I would be that way if I encountered that type of resistance. I don't know, though. I could see myself saying, well, you know, I think I'm going to go uh, preach the gospel in the agricultural community. 
I'll go find a couple farmers out in the middle of nowhere. I'll preach the gospel to them. Or maybe I'll write a little Christian track and I'll leave it in the bathrooms in the temple, you know. And that'll be the way I witness. I'll do it kind of incognito. But no, not so. They were bold, they were determined, and they were defiant. And incredible things happened because they did that. All right, a third group. A third group is really the Pharisees, and Gamaliel is the poster child for him. Gamaliel was the, the mentor to the Apostle Paul. Now, he was known as Saul at that time, but he's the one that mentored and taught Paul. And so he was a, a, a very well-known leader and well-respected, even amongst the Sadducees. And there are some, some real differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But there's three words, I believe, that, that describe Gamaliel. He was an avoider. He was avoiding certain things. He was an arbitrator, and he was ardent. Now, let's, let's look at this. All right. He did some noble things here, right? He, he basically, his uh, level-headed speech saved the lives of these disciples, and so that's great. And some of the things he said were, were kind of true, right? He said, if it's, it's a work of man, it will fail, well, we know from history that's not always true. There are some works of men that go on at least for a season, right? I mean, even Hitler's regime went on for, for a long time, nearly a, a decade or over. And so uh, we see that sometimes the work of man does prosper, uh, even if it's evil, sometimes it prospers. Now, one thing is true, though. If it's something of God, it will prevail. It will prevail with time. Now, there may be some setbacks, but it will prevail. The ways of God always win. So he was half right. Uh, another right way he was, he was partially wrong was he likened Jesus just to another rebel, right? He compared him to a couple other guys who had led some insurrections. He was missing the point. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is God come down to earth, and he missed that. Here, this great teacher had devoted himself to the scriptures. He was missing it. Now, I appreciate the fact that he was an arbitrator. He had calm, calm head about him, and he was able to use his influence to keep them from being killed. You know, when he, he reasoned with the council, I thought they were just going to let the disciples go, but <laughs> they still beat them. And we don't know exactly what that entailed, but usually it meant that they received 39 lashes. And, and some said if you, the 40th usually would kill you. So they are literally beaten with an inch of their life. And they still went out and preached the gospel. And so he was an arbitrator, which was a great thing. I think we need more people that are reasonable in our society, even if they're not believers that are reasonable. So that's a, a noble thing. But he was also ardent. And I think partly why he was a good arbitrator was he was an ardent uh, believer in the scriptures. And he did, as all Pharisees did, believed in angels. So it could very well be that he had heard the story of how these, these apostles were set free from jail by angels. And in fact, I'm sure he probably did hear that. And that probably gave him, gave him pause, unlike the Sadducees, because he believed in angels. And so in light of that, he's like, maybe there is something going on here. We need to tread lightly. And that's probably why he was such a good arbitrator. But one thing he did to his fault even though some of his story is good, was he minimized things. And this is something we've got to watch out for in our own circles, whether it be in society, whether it be in the church, 
or whether it be in our own lives, we got to be careful that we don't minimize things that shouldn't be minimized, especially when it comes to faith in Scripture. We need to stand true and bold and not be bullied into silence or, or taking a, a step back from things that we know to be true from Scripture. We don't want to minimize it. We also don't want to put things on a back burner, which is sometimes what we do. When we are talking about difficult subjects in the church or in our community or even in our families, sometimes we'll, we'll just like, I'll just avoid it. I'll put it on the back burner. I'll t- deal with this. Maybe we'll talk about this sometime with our kids. Or maybe sometime we'll talk about this in church and bring it up to the eldership. But we'll put it on the back burner because we're avoiding it. And we need to be careful not to do that. So there's some lessons here that we've got to learn from Gamaliel, from his mistakes. Well, guys, I want to tell you, all of us at some point have encountered persecution. If you've been a Christian for long, you've, rec- you've encountered some, some opposition, right? I mean, I'm looking out here, and some of you are getting up in the years. I'm not going to say who. Um, but some of us are you know, getting up there. We've been around the block a few times. And, and even for the younger ones, you've, you've probably encountered persecution at, at school or elsewhere for your faith. And it's just going to happen. It is part of life, and we've got to overcome. Uh, Nathaniel asked me to share a little bit of my story. When I started Freedom Fire, I experienced, you know, in a very small way, Uh, some of this opposition that the disciples uh, encountered. I was working for a church that was a fast-growing church at the time. And and I'd been there for a number of years, but I started to feel this divine discontentment. I knew I was supposed to move on because I always felt like urban ministry is part of my call. I came to know the Lord through David Wilkerson Seminar, who was an inner-city evangelist in New York City, Uh, He helped lead me to the Lord. I was discipled by World Impact Missionaries, which was an urban ministry that was all over the country. And I was discipled by a couple of their missionaries. Uh, My oldest sister adopted two biracial children. And so that caused me to be more sensitive to racial issues. And there was a number of other things where I feel God, looking back, was preparing me to do urban ministry. And I, I, it was probably around 1996, I started feeling this call, which I always felt was there, to do urban ministry. And ironically, at the same time, this church felt like it, it had this mandate to do urban ministry. And so I spoke up and said, guys, I've got to, to, to do urban ministry. I just know God's calling me to do it. I, I, I know that I know. I've just got to do it. And the problem, the rub came in that they wanted me to do it under their umbrella. And um, and I didn't feel like that was right. There was a couple reasons. One, I didn't feel like the leadership structure was right for it. And some of the ministry philosophies weren't right for what we wanted to do. And number two, I felt like we were start an ecumenical missions agency that worked in the urban core. And we wanted a lot of churches to be a part of what we were doing. Well, this rubbed a lot of feathers wrong. And I became kind of a, uh, an outsider. They would have staff meetings talking about this and not invite me. I was called a, a, a betrayer at one point. And there was just some real opposition where people really felt like I was being disobedient and rebellious. But I knew that I knew that I was supposed to do it. I can remember going on long prayer walks, asking the Lord about it. And I said, Lord, even if none follow, still, uh, even if none come, still I will follow. Uh, still I will follow. And, and you know what, what happened was I persevered. Because I had some people in my life that, that encouraged me and spoke and helped me during this season. I didn't do it in a vacuum. I had a community around me that helped me. 
even though some of the leaders in, uh, that I was working with didn't. But eventually, the church came around, and they supported me for a, uh, a significant amount for the first two years. And so I thought that was pretty amazing that they did that. And, and some were, ended up becoming very uh, much a, a supporter, encouraging. And others who had been much harder on me, years later came to me and said, Bruce, you're right. We see that this was, this was done well and, and, and right. And so it, the perseverance ended up winning out. But if I gave in to the obstacles, I might not ever have sta started Freedom Fire Ministries. And I just want to say, in that story, I didn't do everything perfect. You know, the way I communicated, I think, was probably offensive at times. I came across too strong. My dad was an attorney, and I inherited some of his ways. And the way I presented my arguments came more like a legal argument than out of friendship. And um, I was just probably harsh. I didn't probably give enough credit to some of the guys who had poured themselves into me. And so I didn't do everything right. So I got to just say that. But I had to persevere. I had to overcome and God blessed it in time. And I, I, so I, in closing, there's several key applications that I think we can take home. And I did all the same letter again for you in case it's hard, hard for you to follow along. Uh, it's, it's being persevering, praying, and proclaiming. And persevering is just what I was talking about. We need to persevere. When things are tough, we don't need to cash in the chips. And I want to say this. Sometimes we have setbacks, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing the wrong thing. I think sometimes we interpret setbacks and obstacles wrongly, thinking I must be doing something wrong, or I'm not doing the right thing. But sometimes setbacks mean you're doing the right thing. Uh, and here's the truth, is no matter what you do, even if you do it perfectly and do it right, and especially if you're doing things for the kingdom, and you're standing up for the truth, is there's always going to be some people that are not okay with you, that criticize you. You've got to be okay with that. You can't have everybody happy with you all the time. People are going to be upset with you. And in this passage that we just read about, we see the leaders were mad because the disciples defied their doctrines, their instructions, and threatened their influence over their people. Just like the Japanese were upset with, with the Americans. And that's what these religious leaders were doing. These community leaders were doing. They were mad at them. They were upset with them. But the disciples had to overcome that. Because they were doing what was more important. Obeying God over men. Even when those men couldn't see it. Men that you would think would have recognized it. And they didn't. They still did it. Here's another great quote that I think is very, very helpful. This was written by a bishop during World War II. And this is what he says about the Christian faith. He said, Christians are called to the hardest of all tasks, to fight without hatred. We are supposed to fight for things, to resist without bitterness. And in the end, if God grants it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. We need to be outspoken we need to stand up for what's right. We need to stand up for the gospel. And there's many ways that this can take place. I did this uh, just recently, and it, it, it took a little bit on my part to do this. But uh, I, I've enjoyed going to the Royals games for years. I have 14 grandkids. I love taking the grandkids there. And this last year, they did something that just shocked me. Uh, there was a night that they set aside, and they had drag queens perform at Royal Stadium. One of the drag queens' name is the Whore of 84. 
And not only did they set up a stage and let them perform there, but they set it just inside gate A, which is closest to the children's play place. I have problems with this. This was not right and it was not okay to have adult entertainment in a family uh, venue. Uh, there's even laws in Missouri that speak out against having adult entertainment in children, places where children are going to be. And it's just not right. And, uh, and I, I didn't know what, <laughs> I was frustrated. It's like, oh, what do I do with this? And so partly just <laughs> for my own healing in this thing, I ended up finding the home address of John and Marnie Sherman, the owners of the Royals. And I wrote them a personal letter, just a one-page letter. I, I made it a, a, trying to follow William Temple's advice. I tried to make it where it wasn't full of bitterness or, or, you know, volatile. But just appealing to them. Common sense. I mean, even Bruce Jenner, or Caitlyn Jenner, however you want to look at it, who's transgender, he talked about some of these things that were going on during that time. And he said, you know, it's one thing a lot of people are okay if we make choices that are different than what they would make or are in disagreement with them. But he said what happens is many of us are foolish and we force our ways on others. And so no wonder people are in opposition. And so he was trying to appeal to people. Here, Bruce Jenner was appealing. And that's what's happened with Major League Baseball is they're forcing their political agenda on others. And we need to stand up about that. You know, I'm thankful the Texas Rangers did stand up on, on that last year. And it went pretty well for them as they won the World Series. So we need to do that. So, um, you know, we need to love. We, we need to love, and, and we can love without agreement, can't we? We can love without agreement. We can be kind without capitulating. And we can speak up without disrespect. And we need to do that as a community. And so we got to persevere. We got to be bold. We got to speak up where we can. But we also need to be people of prayer. And that's the second application. We need to be prayerful. And Acts 6, which you guys, I assume, will probably get to next week, probably, it talks about the disciples being devoted to prayer. Acts 6 4 talks about how they, they were faithful in the place of prayer. And then as we saw here in the latter part, part of Acts 5, the disciples were serious about proclaiming the good news. We need to always put the good news first. We need to make that a priority. And that's one thing I am so thankful about Hillcrest. And I know that Hillcrest has gone through some hard times in the last number of years and then had to suffer COVID and the pandemic and all of that. But one thing I've always seen about Hillcrest is they've been devoted to the gospel and always had a high uh, commitment to missions, which I also have found very noble. And so Hillcrest is there. And I, my encouragement for you as a body of Christ is always put the gospel first. Always be outward focused. When you're outward focused, you're going to find inwardly you become healthier and more vibrant. And so I encourage you to continue to do that. So in summary, be persevering, be a people of prayer, and always proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Um, uh, I'm going to pray that these things would be imparted to us. But I also want to pray for uh, an organization to uh, YWAM. If you've called, you've, I'm sure you've heard of Youth with a Mission. They had a horrible tragedy happen in the last 24 hours. Twelve of their missionaries in Tanzania died. 
they were in a, a van that crashed and all of them perished. And uh, as you can imagine, that's, you know, just earth shaking for that organization. So we need to lift up those families and that organization now. So I'm going to pray for them as well. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you that you love us and you care for us, that you allow us to participate in your good news. And as we do that, as we live out our faith, Lord, would you help us to be persevering? Would you help us to be a people of prayer, recognizing our dependency upon you and that it's you that enables us to live fully for you? And Lord, help us to always proclaim and live out your good news. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would impart these things to this body of Christ and that all of these things would be trademarks of this community. Lord, I've already seen the perseverance in this community. I pray it would continue. I pray that, that prayer would continue to prosper here and that your good news would be, uh, be shown and, and disseminated through these people. Lord, we want to take this moment to lift up YWAM, a group that has been committed to all these things as well. We ask that you would comfort them now, especially the families of those who lost loved ones in Tanzania. Would you encourage them? Would you comfort them? Would you provide a support system and a community that would help them? I pray for the leadership of YWAM, that you'd give them wisdom in this season and that you'd guide them. And I pray that your blessing would be upon YWAM and help them and, and strengthen them to continue to proclaim your good news in this hurting world. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And they all said, amen. Hillcrest, thank you so much for joining us for worship this morning. Thank you so much for joining us online. Please be, feel free to drop your tithes, offerings, and connection cards in the joy boxes by the doors. Here in Hillcrest, we celebrate generosity. We're so honored and thankful to be here with you today. We'll see you guys again next week. We love you. Be blessed. Thank you.